This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's Board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, we're spending the hour with multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Ken Armstrong. He, along with T. Christian Miller of ProPublica, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for, in the words of the Pulitzer Committee, a startling examination and expose of law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly and to comprehend the traumatic effects on its victims. Ken Armstrong previously worked at the Seattle Times, where he won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. Uh, At the Chicago Tribune, his work helped prompt the Illinois governor to suspend executions and later to empty death row. He's been the McGraw Professor of Writing at Princeton, a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. He's currently associated with the Marshall Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit news organization that seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system. And uh, Ken Armstrong uh, joins us. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I want to start with uh, you. you uh, by the way, uh, interesting website. Well done. You, uh, as a journalist, a reporter, uh, it's it's very well organized into who, what, how, uh, why. And I want to get into the how and the why. Uh, first of all, you've been uh, many different places. You've uh, reported in uh, Colorado, California, New York, Alaska, and Virginia. I love this paragraph. At the Chicago Tribune, I dug into hundreds of capital cases an investigation that helped prompt the governor to halt executions. In Seattle, I dug up hundreds of illegally sealed court files. In Twin Files, Idaho, I wrote about a woman who mooned the police. That's right. You know, when you are a reporter, you do all stories, big and small. And I have to tell you, the the story about the woman who mooned the police has stayed with me about more than any other. Um, It it still remains, many years later, one of my favorite stories. (laughs) Why so? Unusual? It was. It was because she um, was so adamant about how she would do it again. <laughs> I mean, it was. No. I mean, uh, it was. It was fun being able to interview her um, because it was just something where a lot of times it's difficult to reach people, you know, under circumstances like that. But she was happy to talk about what she did, and uh, as I said, she she was just kept insisting that if she had the chance to do it again, she would. You uh, say in your, your section on why, why do reporters do what they do, um, it's, it's to make a difference, right? Uh, and I want to connect that to uh, the, the state of journalism today, especially investigative reporting. Uh, investigative reporting can change laws. It can change lives. An example, um, you're reporting in, in Illinois. The governor, uh, you know, suspended executions, emptied death row because of, you know, uh, in part because of your reporting. It, it did. I mean, that was, you know, one of the more dramatic examples. Um, you know, in Illinois, we had a, a Republican governor um, who had historically supported the death penalty. Um, back when he had been in the state legislature, he had voted for the uh, the state's death penalty. But because of the reporting we had done showing the fault lines, you know, in the system of capital punishment there and how there was a real risk that an innocent person was going to be executed because of the state's error rate, um, he became convinced that he could no longer sign any death warrants. You know, his confidence was too shaken in, in how the uh, system was operating. So he, he declared a moratorium on executions. Um, the state legislature passed sweeping overhauls you know, to the criminal justice system, basically shoring up those fault lines, you know, trying to find ways to make sure that innocence was protected as, as is intended. And and then subsequently he granted a blanket commutation where he he granted pardons based on innocence to four inmates on death row, and the others he reduced their sentences to to life in prison without parole. 
And, and there's been continuing reporting on this and an ongoing debate. One recent development here in Utah, uh, some conservative Republicans are now saying they have some doubts about the uh, death penalty. It is. You know, it's something where I think it's a mistake to view criminal justice or the death penalty in strictly partisan terms. Um, um, we've consistently found that people across the political spectrum have concerns uh, about the system, and, and they're often coming from different places. But no one, whether they're, they identify as liberal, conservative, libertarian, whatever, nobody wants to see innocent people you know, being convicted and imprisoned. Have we executed innocent people, do you think? Um, you know, that's, that's sort of the holy grail in, in journalism, or at least it has been historically in the criminal justice realm. There have been a lot of reporters you know, who have tried to tackle that question. And I think there's been some terrific reporting done where there have been real questions raised. You know, for example, there have been several um, inmates in Texas, like Cameron Todd Willingham, who were executed, where there's been very compelling stories written about the evidence indicating they were innocent. There has not, though, been any case where there has been something like DNA evidence that has been tested subsequent to an execution and has excluded the person. So I, I think that you know, some people would say it's still an open question. Given how many people have been executed and given the error rate in capital punishment generally, it seems likely um, you know, that among the many people who have been executed, there are people who are innocent. But it's not something that I think has been proved definitively. I want to connect this to the, the state of journalism uh, t- today. It's It's... I guess it's it's my view that newspapers drive, especially investigative reporting, uh, television, radio. We you know we sort of uh, piggyback in in some respects, um, and famously, uh, newspapers are failing. Newspapers are trying to find uh, new sources of, of revenue, and uh, what's that going to do to investigative reporting? You know, investigative reporting is finding new models, and you know, I live in Seattle. Um, the Marshall Project, where I work, is based in New York. They let me work remotely you know, from the, the other side of the country. Um, like, take the place where I work, the Marshall Project. We're a nonprofit, um, so we don't rely on subscriptions or advertising. Instead, we rely on donations you know, and, and funding from uh, foundations and, and individuals. And you're starting to see a lot more of that, both on the national level and on the state level. You're seeing a number of nonprofits. Um, in different states that concentrate on you know, the state legislature or, or state policy um, in, in general. Um, I do still see you know, some, some really good investigative reporting in other media, you know, like out in Seattle, the, uh, the local television stations, uh, King 5, uh, for example, does some terrific um, investigative reporting. So it's something that you can still find across the different spectrums. The issue is funding. You know, we, we don't have the resources that we once did. And where I find I have the most concern is it not just in staffing levels. It, it's in the ability, it's, it's having the financial wherewithal to do stories that take a lot of money. Um, and I'll give you a, a real quick example. Um, when I was at the Seattle Times, um, we did a series on court records that had been improperly sealed. These were civil suits where there was real public harm, you know, where it involved problems in the public schools, in hospitals, in state agencies, and entire civil suits were being sealed, you know, kept from the public, where the public really needed to know what was going on. We sued to get all of these, or at least 40 lawsuits opened up, and it cost us about $200,000. this was before you know, the economic spiral in 2008. To think that a regional paper now would be able to spend $200,000 on a project like that, it's pretty much unthinkable. And I think that that's where we're at with a lot of investigative reporting, is that we still pursue stories. We're still aggressive. We still have you know, staffing that in some spots you know, um, allows us to do what we want to do. But I do worry about having the money to do some kinds of stories.
So uh, nonprofit, perhaps, and I, I, it puts me in mind of uh, one of our local papers here, Salt Lake Tribune, which has set up a you know a membership revenue source. So sort of like public radio, which you're very familiar with uh, on on this station, you can become a member of your your local newspaper. That's right, and, and public radio is is a great um, example where you also find wonderful in depth reporting. Um, you know, the story that we worked on last year uh, involving a rape case in Washington State and in Colorado, we also collaborated with This American Life, and we did a one-hour episode of the story with, with the folks there, and they reach a really large audience, and the story resonated um, in a way with them. And we reach people beyond the print story that we ran online. So that's another thing that you're finding now, is you're finding that media companies are partnering and expanding their reach through, through finding ways to tell a story on the radio, on TV, online, in print, in magazines. Um, we've partnered across the spectrum um, at the Marshall Project. And uh, according to this, uh, this latest Pulitzer, you, you share this with T. Christian Miller of ProPublica, to two organizations that are doing somewhat similar work but are competitors in a way as well. That's right. You know, ProPublica is, is, is the model for nonprofit journalism. Um, I think they're the largest um, investigative news um, workshop um, in the country. Um, they were in very early um, in, in this process. Um, they, they have managed to generate a lot of traction, a lot of momentum with their work. So yeah, it, it, and, and we're more recent. Um, you know, the Marshall Project um, was launched in November of 2014. But in this instance, we were both working on the same story independently, unbeknownst to one another, and happened to cross paths while we were both working on the story. And instead of competing and having um, a rush to print, you know, where we tried to beat the other, we decided to pool our resources and work together. And everyone is grateful that we did. You know, the story really is the better for it. Uh, following a break, which will take in a couple of minutes, I, I do want to jump into this uh, case. The, the title of the Marshall Project is An Unbelievable Story of Rape. And uh, the title for This American Life was Anatomy of Doubt. It's, it's a fascinating and uh, shocking uh, piece of, of reporting. Uh, we'll talk about that. I want to, uh, right now, just uh, spend a couple minutes on how. You have a section on your website, how, and it's uh, how to do reporting. And it's less glamorous than uh, some people might think. Um, you know, you, you see the, the film Spotlight, and, and of course, it's, it, it's, the dramatic arc is, is certainly telescoped to, for dramatic purposes. Uh, tell me the story. You have this on the website. Abby Mann, who's a fairly famous Academy Award-winning screenwriter, movie producer, you say flirted with making a movie about the work that uh, you and Steve Mills did in Chicago on the death penalty. That, that's right. And, and you know, that's the, the story that had the, the dramatic result, right, where the governor declares a moratorium on executions and eventually empties death row. But as dramatic as the results were, the process of getting there was uh, equally boring and dull which Mr. Mann discovered when he talked to us about how we did it, um, that whole story was built upon pulling court files. And in all, we pulled court files for 285 cases and building a data set, you know, basically finding how many times was someone facing the death penalty defended by an attorney who was subsequently disbarred or suspended. How many times did you have an African-American defendant and an all-white jury for either the guilt phase or the sentencing phase? How often did you have this? How often did you have that? Um, it does not make for a very compelling story, and it would make for a dreadful film to see two reporters you know, at the courthouse <laughs> pulling 285 files, reading a bunch of paperwork, and filling in boxes on a spreadsheet. And, you know, with, with Mr. Mann, I could just tell as I was describing to him the work that we did, you could just see his enthusiasm waning and his eyes glazing over and him moving on to the next project in his mind. Um, <laughs> and that's what a lot of our work is. A lot of our work is, is really pretty dull. 
um, it, it can pay off, right? I mean, it, it all leads to something good where we bring, you know, hopefully a better understanding of a complicated subject. But the, the, the way we get there um, doesn't always lead to, you know, clandestine meetings in parking garages at midnight or secret sources or anything like that. Um, it, it's often pulling files and doing a lot of reading. You had a title, which I liked. Uh, it would have been called Spreadsheet, this movie. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah, that's not exactly going to bring the people into the theater, is it? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, maybe a very specific uh, demographic. Uh, I want to ask you parenthetically what you think d- does um, reporting in the popular media, does that help bring in resources? A film like Spotlight, does that, does that help? It does. Um, you know, I, I think that... Um, because even in Spotlight, you could see how a lot of the reporting was the, what I was just describing, right? Being they also had a spreadsheet there where they were pulling in um, all the information they could about various members of the church, you know, who who had been accused um, over the years. So, it, it Spotlight is a, a film that celebrated by many in the journalism field because it really did seem to feel real. You know, it, it really was a, a, a fair depiction um, of, the, of the work that we do and the impact that it can have. Um, and the nice thing about you know, Spotlight is that that work was also done in many other places by many other papers afterwards, right, where people were looking at the same subject and finding the same problems in their own communities. Um, but yeah, I do. I think that any time people can get a better understanding of what we do, we're, we're, we're all better for it. There's an image on your website, which it took me a, a couple of minutes to decipher this, the handwriting. This is, you know, rocks you turn over. And this particular image was, was humorous, but it's also very distressing. I don't think this was a death penalty case. This was a, a lawyer who was asking for a continuance in a, in a different case. And what he'd written, reason for continuance, D and A testing. That's right, D and A. Which uh, is, not which is D-N-A. right, D and uh, A. Right. And, and, and Tom, what was so distressing about that is that this was a three strikes case where um, his client was accused of rape. Um, his client had two previous strikes under the state statute, and if he was convicted, he was going to get um, a mandatory life without parole sentence. But in a rape case, you know, there, there's no evidence more important often than the biological evidence. And, and to have a public defender who doesn't even know that it's DNA, not DNA, does not exactly provide confidence that he's going to be um, effective cross-examining an expert or getting the, uh, the tests needed you know, to, to defend his client as well as we would hope, and as well as the uh, Sixth Amendment anticipates. And it was fairly typical um, in that county. That, that was part of a series we wrote about public defense failures in one county that were subsequently addressed. Um, and it, it's much better there now than it was at that time. Well, that's, that's good. I, I found myself, some of the thoughts that went through my mind when I deciphered it, it, it was kind of like a puzzle because the handwriting was kind of bad, um, and then the thoughts went through my head were, well, it's good. Hopefully problems get solved. The system gets improved. That's the whole purpose for reporting, right? On the other hand, I had a brief, I had a fleeting thought. I kind of don't want to know because I, I don't want to know how, how, you know, systematic, how far flung the problem is. It's just really distressing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, um, it can be pretty bleak. But I don't think the answer, right, is to, um, to avoid it. I think it's to face it head on, to learn as much as we can, and then address it. That's what was done here. Um, and this was in Grant County, which is in the middle of Washington State. There was um, a, a lawsuit um, that was filed against the county to make sure that it had sufficient funding for public defense, and that it had sufficient controls in place. Um, it was um, a place where there were a lot of conflicts, financial conflicts, embedded into the system that were causing real problems. And uh, it's not ideal now, 
but it's much better. And another problem that we wrote about in that series was how a lot of public defenders across the state were struggling with excessive caseloads. They simply had too much work to be able to do what they needed to do in each individual case. And eight years later, it took eight years, but eight years later, the Washington State Supreme Court passed a rule statewide that placed a ceiling, a limit, on how many cases public defenders can have. And they cited the work that we did. So that's another thing that we often find is that it can take time, but when you provide information to the public and to policymakers, good things can happen. And we do need to know, right, because it's, a lot of times it takes public pressure to, to make sure that uh, changes are made. It, it does, and, and not just public pressure. It just takes public awareness a lot of times. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it just has to resonate with one right person, such as what happened in Illinois. You know, we, we, the stories that we wrote resonated with the governor, and he was in a position to take a lead on the issue. And he not only took a lead individually in terms of what he was able to do as governor, but he also was able to convince members of the legislature to deal with it um, in a more systematic manner. And that's what you need. You just need to get started. Reach one person and, and let it go from there. We're going to take a break. We're talking with Ken Armstrong. He's a reporter uh, now with uh, the Marshall Project. And uh, he's uh, the winner of, uh, I think, four Pulitzer Prizes. The most recent Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for a startling examination and expose of law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly and to comprehend the traumatic effects on its victims. We're going to talk about that case. Uh, in its incarnation as a This American Life episode, it was titled Anatomy of a Doubt. A story about doubt here in, in the words of uh, This American Life, how it germinated, spread, eventually took hold of an entire community with terrible consequences. The story in the Marshall Projects is titled An Unbelievable Story of Rape. We'll get into that case and talk about much more following this break. Utah Public Radio congratulates Cody Andrew Berry, James Broderick, Robert L. Olson, Eric Olson, Zachary W. Pickering, Joshua David Rasmussen, Colby K. Serrell, and Zachary F. Thomas for receiving scholarship awards from the American Nuclear Society. We look forward to their future accomplishments. Kudos from Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement, online at utahumanities.org. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are spending the hour with a reporter, Ken Armstrong. He, along with T. Christian Miller, won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for, in the committee's words, a startling examination and expose of law enforcement's enduring failures to investigate reports of rape properly and to comprehend the traumatic effects on its victims. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can find much of this reporting that we're talking about uh, at uh, Ken Armstrong's uh, website, which is bikenarmstrong.com, B-Y-K-E-N armstrong.com. Um, I want to talk about An Unbelievable Story of Rape. That's the title in the Marshall Project. The uh, This American Life titled it Anatomy of Doubt. Just parenthetically, before we get into this, uh, just some startling reporting here. Um, what was it like to work with This American Life? It was eye-opening. Um, I had never um, worked um, in radio before. Um, I had never done a story with them. And they were fabulous. They were so great to work with. And what struck me was how differently they do things. Um, when it came time to write the story, they do it collectively communally, where you will have six to eight people sitting around a table, 
each person with a laptop open, each person with the same document open in edit mode, and everybody is welcome to, to write into the script as you're going along. Um, in the print world, we don't do that. It's a very individual enterprise where you're writing the story, then you turn it over to an editor and it gets edited, but you never feel like you're, you're forfeiting control of it. Um, radio, at least at This American Life, they, they want to write it as a collective, as a group. And it worked beautifully. Um, you know, it was a certain, there was a certain amount of a leap of faith you know, in the process, and Ira Glass had warned me about that prior to us going into the story, saying you have to buy into this. Um, but if you can, I think you'll find that this is um, really something different and effective, and it was. The piece originally aired, I think, February of this year. Um, and a, a plug for our audience, a reminder, This American Life is heard on Utah Public Radio Saturday mornings at 11. Um, so you, you begin uh, th- this piece... Uh, which you title an unbelievable story of rape with a young woman, 18 years old. Her name is Marie, been in foster uh, homes um, most of her her life. She reports uh, a rape, but very soon uh, doubts come up, including uh, among her, uh, you could call them two foster mothers. That's right. Um, Immediately, um, with with both of her, her more recent foster mothers, the doubts set in from the moment they hear the news. And it's based upon the way in which Marie reacts to having been hurt. Um, They find it puzzling. Um, Her affect is flat. She's emotionless. Um, She's telling a lot of different people about having been raped, which they think is curious because they believe this is something that you would hold privately or or share with as few people as possible. Um, her, Her reaction time and again surprises them. She goes shopping with one of the foster mothers to replace the bedding um, that she had because the police had seized um, her comforter and sheets and everything as potential evidence in the case, so she has to replace it. When they go shopping, she wants to find the same exact set, and one of her foster mothers can't understand why. You know, she, she said, why would you want to be reminded of what happened? And Marie's reaction was simply, I like those sheets. Um, And it was just one example after another where people had conceptions about how a rape victim should act that didn't fit with the the way Marie acted. And because of that, doubts started and they spread and they reached the police department and the police department wound up going sideways with its investigation because it, it pursued those doubts instead of pursuing the evidence in the case. And, and in fact, Marie ends up confessing that she made it up. That's right. Um, the, the police um, begin treating her as a suspect rather than as a victim, and they interrogate her you know, rather than interview her uh, three days after the rape was reported. And during the course of that interrogation, she recants. And she decides that she doesn't want to deal with this anymore. She shuts down emotionally. And she decides the easiest way to deal with this now is for me to take the story back and and just try to walk away. And that's what she does. So she says, Mm -hmm. okay, um, it didn't happen. I wasn't really raped. And after she does that, she winds up being charged um, with filing a false police report. Um, and she entered into a plea deal um, under which she had to pay $500. She had to get counseling for a year, not for having been raped, but for having lied about it. Um, so she, she went from being a rape victim to a, a criminal defendant. Now, this is fairly unusual, to be, to, to be, isn't it, to be charged with false report, or, or is it unusual? It is unusual. It's not unheard of. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, you can even find a, a few other instances nationally where people have been charged, and it was subsequently discovered that they really were raped. Um, that's happened in Wisconsin. It also happened in Pennsylvania. Um, not saying it's common, um, but it is something where her case is not necessarily unique. You write in the in the piece, uh, the fear of false rape accusations has a long history in the legal system. You go back to the 1600s, uh, 
England's Chief Justice Matthew Hale, uh, quoting here, warned that rape is, quote, an accusation easily uh, to be made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended by the party accused. But you go on to say the FBI figures show police annually declare about 5% of rape cases unfounded or baseless. It's uh, uh, false rape accusations are, are quite rare. They are, and, and it's something where nobody has a definitive statistic on it, because how could they, right? How, how can anyone possibly know how many reports are true and how many are, are false? Um, but the studies that have been done generally fall in the neighborhood of believing that anywhere from 2 to 8% um, of reports um, are false. Now, in your reporting, um, and you can find this uh, on the website, bikenarmstrong.com, one place that you can go to the Marshall Project as well, um, you do parallel reporting um, of a, a suspected serial rapist. A woman reports a rape in, I think it's Golden, Colorado. A detective, female detective, is is on the, on the, on the case. Um, tell me a little bit about that case. Yeah, one of the things that... Um appealed to us about writing about this case was that it provided an opportunity to show police work in in different settings and with different approaches. Um, All that went wrong in Linwood, Washington, um, where Marie was not believed, where she was charged, it went right in Colorado, um, where you had multiple police departments who, um, or that, that worked together to to solve the case of a serial rapist, a serial rapist who, it turned out, was the same man who had raped Marie in Washington. Um, they just did everything right. They pursued every lead. They worked together. Um, when they had um, skepticism, doubts, a sense of wonder about whether or not um, someone had actually been raped. They didn't allow that to derail the investigation. They just continued to pursue the evidence. And because of the work that was done there in, in Golden and in Westminster um, in Aurora with the, the State uh, Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, all of these agencies were working together. They were able to, to chase down uh, Mark O'Leary, the serial rapist, and after they arrested him, they found in his uh, computer uh, materials um, photographs proving that he had also raped Marie in Linwood, Washington. So that's how Marie wound up being vindicated. It was because of the police work that was done in Colorado. One of the problems, one of the uh, sources of doubt for some of the people there in Washington was details in the case, right? Details which proved to, to, to be the exact M.O. of the, of, of the rapist. That's right. It, it, you know, I think a lot of times you know, we, we have preconceptions about how trauma will impact people. We also have preconceptions about what a crime looks like. One of the foster mothers in, in the case in Linwood the rapist used the victim's own shoelaces to tie her up, and that just seemed unlikely to one of the foster moms. You know, her she she said she was a big Law and Order fan, and it just the, the scene didn't feel right. The story that Marie was telling didn't sound right. It didn't fit with what she believed a, a rape crime scene would look like, and, and she had trouble believing that a rapist wouldn't bring uh, something stronger to tie somebody up with, you know, whether it's rope or bring handcuffs or whatever the case might be. So, you know, those doubts traced to so many different things. Um, it, was, it was not just her affect, but it was also the, the story she told of how the rape had occurred. Uh, the um, to his credit, the uh, Linwood police chief uh, Steve Jensen requested an outside review of how his department had handled the investigation. I guess you you get it that wrong. You 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 go to a review, it, and and the result of that is very interesting. Uh, many of these officers did some introspection. What what do we learn? Do you think that can be applied? You know, you know, Tom. I, I'm so glad you picked up on that because I am so grateful to the Linwood Police Department because. 
they made an awful mistake here. But to their credit, they they have been determined to own it. And they, they spoke with us at length um, about how they believed they they went in the wrong direction here. Um, we we interviewed the um, the head of the criminal investigations division. We interviewed the lead detective um, on this case. You know who who got it wrong. And the easiest thing to do would be to say no comment or to adopt a bunker mentality. You know where you you just decline to talk about what happened. They've gone the other direction. Um, they ordered an external review of what they did wrong. They they conducted an internal review of what they did wrong. And then they spoke with us about what lessons they've learned from this. And they have a number of different policies in place. And perhaps most importantly, they have rigorous training now on victimology. And they want to make sure that their de- detectives have a clear understanding of how there is no one right way to act when you've been hurt. People will react in all kinds of different ways, and you shouldn't assign credibility to someone simply by virtue of whether they're hysterical or whether they seem to be emotionless or whatever the case might be. People act in all kinds of different ways. Um, They also have new policies in place about under what circumstances they'll file a false reporting charge. there, There are many more layers of review now built into the system. And in fact, the last I spoke with someone in the police department, they had not charged anyone with false reporting since this case came to light, since it came to light that they had gotten it wrong. Um, but yeah, and, and not just the Linwood Police Department, but both of the foster moms talked to us about how they got it wrong. And it was they were coming from the same place where they wanted people to learn from their mistakes in hopes that they could avoid making the same mistakes themselves. Um, it takes a lot of courage to talk about something that you regret as deeply as the police and Lynn would do and as deeply as the foster moms do. And I just give them so much credit for, for having that courage and, and letting us learn about what they were thinking at different points um, during this process. Of course, the police and these foster moms, uh, anyone involved with the, this uh, distressing case, uh, they're not in a vacuum, right? And, and societal attitudes uh, come into play here, uh, I think. What would you what would you say about that? What what still needs to change in our culture? I, I, that's absolutely true. It, what really resonated to me was when one of the foster moms, Peggy, was talking about law and order, which I, which I mentioned earlier. Um, there are societal views that have been built, built from stereotypes that are part of popular culture. Um, and it, it's created problems, you know, in, in the court system and in communities at large where people have expectations that simply don't meet with the way the world really is. You know, one example is that there's this expectation that every crime scene will have DNA. Um, available to be tested, and that the DNA will be conclusive in terms of saying whether one individual um, is the um, is the person responsible um, or not. It's it's not always that simple. In fact, it's rarely that simple. But because of um, our viewing habits, these conceptions that we've built up over time, um, it, it's hard to convince people sometimes that the world is more complicated than how we view it. Let's uh, take a call. This is uh, Jennifer in Vernal. Jennifer, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, hi. Um, I hope you didn't cover this while I was talking to um, the lady who answered the phone, but um, I see, uh, well, I see this, I don't like it when women throw other women under the bus, okay? And, uh, I, I'm wondering if these foster moms uh, were reluctant to believe this story because it might somehow negatively reflect on, you know, the time that they had spent with this girl and how they hadn't been able to um, arrange things so that this wouldn't happen to her. And um, I, I think 
just I've heard so many statements during this count, this presidential campaign that are just ludicrous, like the lady who said that there wasn't any racism in in America until Barack Obama was elected. I mean, I even saw the video of her saying this, okay? And it's like, it's a, it's amazing the, um, the extent to which people will, A, lie, and B, believe their own lies. And I'm wondering if there's, a, I don't know if there's a psychologist or psychiatrist who works with uh, people who are will not believe a victim. I know when I was raped, I didn't report it because my great fear was that I was going to be raped over the coals. I mean, I was, uh, I was, uh, what's the right word? Um, uh, I was supposed to be going to a party for the track team at Oregon State. And when I got there, I found out that I was the only one who had come to the party. And this guy was on a scholarship and he had a knife, you know. But if I had told the the school that, well, they don't want one of their athletes to look bad because that makes the school look bad. So I knew that, you know, I so I didn't even bother because of my fear of not being believed. But I'm wondering if possibly in this case these women didn't believe this girl because it might negatively reflect on them. That's what I'm curious about. Thanks, okay, Jennifer. Thanks. thanks for your call. Okay, okay, bye. You know, Jennifer, it, it, it's um, it, it's always hard to to divine someone's motivation, but in in this case, I don't get the impression that that was at the root of it. In fact, you mentioned your own experience and how that affects the way you view the subject. One of the foster moms um, had a similar um, experience. She had been sexually assaulted, and what she did was she looked back at how she had reacted to being sexually assaulted and what her state was when she finally told somebody about it because uh, she had suffered um, sexual abuse as a child in one instance, and it wasn't until nine years later that she told someone. And when she did tell someone, she was, in, in her words, hysterical. Um, she was crying. Um, she was deeply emotional. And she was comparing her reaction to, to Marie's reaction when Marie told someone. And they were at opposite ends of you know, the, the emotional spectrum. And because of that, that also contributed to her doubts. And we found that consistently in reporting on this, that people thought about what their own reactions had been or were likely to be and, and used that, held that up against what they were seeing from Marie. Jennifer, thank you for your call, and I'm so sorry what, uh, what happened to you. Um, uh, uh, Ken Armstrong, um, just briefly, you did some reporting um, some incidents were happening on the University of Washington campus. You got a very interesting, some very, very interesting feedback. A, a gentleman uh, recounted an experience. He was at a frat house. They heard a report of rape. They ended up kicking this, this you know, the frat brother out, but but he's guilty, I guess, years later that uh, he didn't go to police. That's right. I mean, when we wrote about the University of Washington football team, we, we wrote about the um, – the last UW team to go to a Rose Bowl, that was in 2000, and about a lot of the trouble that um, players on that team, um, some players on that team, got into off the field, and, and how the community looked away. You know, everyone from the media to the university administration to police to prosecutors, um, and what the consequences were. You know uh, of this you know community complicity, and it was really a morality tale because we wrote about this years later, and you know, a lot of times when you're writing a morality tale, you know you're not going to it's not going to contribute necessarily to new policies or person or new personnel practices or whatever the case might be, but it can lead to a new understanding. Um, among individual readers, and they might be more reflective, look back on the decisions they've made, the assumptions they've made, and, and realize that 
they need to think differently and do differently going forward. And that one letter you were mentioning was an example of that, you know, where a reader looked back on his own time in college and realized that he acted in the same way that we were writing about in that story, and now he just deeply regrets it. You know, one, one line from his letter just stands out to me. You said if, if this man who had committed that rape went on to, to commit other rapes, it's on his soul, he said. He uses the word yeah. soul. It's, yeah, it's very, very stark. Uh, just uh, briefly, I want to read this paragraph from An Unbelievable Story of Rape, which we've been talking about. Uh, you can find this at themarshallproject.org. Uh, two and a half years after Marie was branded a liar, Linwood police found her south of Seattle and told her the news. Her rapist had been arrested in Colorado. They gave her an envelope with information on counseling for rape victims. They said her record would be expunged. They handed her $500, a refund of her court costs. Marie broke down, experiencing all at one once shock, relief, and anger. The thing that stood out to me with, with that was it, it's hard to take this back, right? I, mean, I guess you, you do what you can as, as the police, as community, as, as officialdom, but it's hard to take that back. It, it is. It's, it's, I, I think it's almost impossible to take it back. I mean, she was victimized twice over. She was raped, and then she wasn't believed, and she was charged as a liar. And, you know, she says that both were as... as painful as, as you as you can possibly imagine um, and you know what what strikes me too is that if the police in Colorado hadn't been so diligent and extraordinary in the work that they had done Marie would still be viewed as someone who had lied about being raped she would still be viewed that way in the public record she would still be viewed that way among many people who are her friends and in her extended foster family. Um, that, to me, is chilling, the idea that uh, she could very well have gone the rest of her life knowing that she really had been raped, but unable to convince the people around her that she had been. just have uh, about four minutes left, and I want to uh, change gears and uh, talk about uh, a recent article, a piece that you did for the Marshall Project. And um, it's titled, How to Fix American Policing. Subtitle, At a Painful Time, a Roundup of Proposed uh, Remedies. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about this. Uh, one idea out there, and of course we, we know the cases, the, the standoffs between uh, police and, and uh, you know communities of color, um, and just the depressing drumbeat of, of cases where usually uh, young men are, are killed by police. Um, one proposed um, fix here is a national standard for use of force. That, that's right, and, and that's a, um, a proposal that has been out there for quite a while. And, you know, it's, it's something that I think people are sometimes surprised to learn is that there is not uniformity in terms of how um, use of force is regulated, you know, when it, it's considered to be appropriate and when it's considered to be inappropriate. And I think the people who um, support this proposal feel like we would all benefit from having some clarity here um, and having a, a comprehensive rule or set of guidelines about when force can be used. Um, that's difficult, you know, because typically um, law enforcement has been something that is um, handled at the local level. Um, I mean, obviously you have federal agencies as well, but for most crime um, is handled at the local level with, you know, police agencies that have their, their own set of guidelines and, and rules um, with, you know, you, know you, you also have, you know, oversight, you know, from the courts and, and elsewhere. But that's a tough call. You know, do, do you want to have a national standard? Um, there would be benefits to it. But I also think that some local agencies would say there is a reason why we want to keep this um, and at, at the community level. 
Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, we can't cover all of this. Uh, it's good reading. Go to the marshallproject.org. One that I do want to treat in just a couple minutes we have left, Human Contact is the, is the subtitle here. And uh, the Oregonian, apparently, according to you, published a story, this is in July or, or uh, around that time, about a black actor and a white police captain in Portland who uh, got together and, and uh, I guess, had a real talk about, uh, about that divide. It's something that I wish we would have happen more frequently. Um, that story really struck me because we have so many divisions in our country now, and it seems like it's more difficult for people to walk across that divide and and find a way to talk. And when you had an African-American actor who was able to talk to a police officer about being stopped repeatedly um, and, and what that does psychologically and what that does to your sense of security, that is really helpful. To have a police officer who's able to talk to someone about what it feels like to approach a car in the dark, not knowing if somebody in that car has a gun, not knowing what dangers are ahead of you. Um, that is something that I think people really need to hear. Um, and, and the fact that they were willing to reach out to one another, to talk with one another, and to absorb you know, each other's experiences, they both um, were so appreciative of it. And it's just something that I, I, I wish we could see happen more often. By the way, you mentioned that uh, some departments are encouraging officers to not only work in the community, but live in it. One of those that you cite is West Valley City here in, in Utah. Anyway, uh, uh, a roundup article that's very well worth reading, um, and uh, an unbelievable uh, story of rape, well worth reading as well. Much of this you can find at the Marshall Project. Uh, much more you can find at uh, Bike and Armstrong, B-Y-K-E-N Armstrong.com. And uh, Ken Armstrong, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, has uh, been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, tomorrow, we hope you'll uh, join us for a, a conversation about ISIS. We'll be talking with uh, reporter Joby Warwick. His um, uh, book is uh, The Black Flags of ISIS. It talks about the beginnings of the terror organization. Uh, that is the subject for tomorrow. hope you'll be with us. Thanks for listening today. Mr. Walsh, extraordinary accusations must be followed up by extraordinary proof. And you haven't come up with extraordinary proof. I kind of wondered, why was ordinary proof not enough? Join us for stories of disruptive neighbors, family roots, and one unbelievable con. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.